0: I'm Walter Olson
1: from the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. There's a well-known anecdote about former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. He was attending a Washington Redskins game when the referee made a dubious call, and Kissinger rose to his feet and shouted out at the top of his voice, on what theory? (laughs) And this is how we often uh, (coughs) respond to judges when they make a constitutional call that we don't agree with, or sometimes even when they make one that we do agree with, uh, we want there to be a theory, preferably an all-explanatory theory. And this wonderful new book by Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson uh, takes issue with that. He thinks that there is too much theorizing and too many theory heads already in constitutional law. And he recommends something different. Let me recommend this book to all of you. You can buy it on the outside when you are filing out to lunch. Uh, It is to begin with short. Uh, Judge Wilkinson knows how to omit the inessentials, and so you can finish this book in an afternoon. Uh, He presents wonderful uh, capsule chapters on leading uh, theories of constitutional interpretation, uh, which are often uh, more clearly explained and more fun to read than if you went to the original sources. Uh, I would much rather read Judge Wilkinson on John Hart Ely, for example. No, no offense to the late uh, John Hart Ely than I would read uh, John Hart Ely himself. Um, there are terrific explanations of why the School of the Living Constitution is dead uh, <coughs> and a searching and fascinating critique of originalism and much much more but I think many of you came in hopes of hearing or seeing fireworks, and it probably won't be on some of those other subsidiary schools, but about the question of whether Friends of Liberty ought to uh, be activists, ought to be partisans of judicial restraint, or something else. Uh, This has come up with Judge Wilkinson's widely noted criticisms of decisions in areas like eminent domain and uh, individual rights under the Second Amendment, And I would emphasize before I introduce our panelists that this is really a quarrel among friends here. Uh, Everyone I know at the Cato Institute, including Roger and myself, have been admirers of Judge Wilkinson. Uh, Throughout his career, uh, he is passionately devoted to uh, the same causes that we are, even if he sometimes arrives at uh, somewhat different conclusions about the role of judges. Uh, (coughs) I will introduce both panelists. Uh, so that they can then speak immediately after each other, and both will have about 15 minutes, and then they'll have a chance to respond to each other. Uh, beginning will be J. Harvey Wilkinson III, circuit judge for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Uh, he began as a clerk to uh, Justice Lewis Powell. Uh, judge Wilkinson was a professor at UVA Law School in uh, no less than three different stints, and has done an awful lot of other interesting things. He's practically in the post new category as far as versatility. He has been the editor of a major newspaper, the Norfolk Virginian pilot. Uh, he has been a, a, a key Justice Department official as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division. Uh, He was appointed uh, to the Fourth Circuit in 1984 and served as its chief judge from 1996 to 2003. Uh, Those were perhaps the great years of the Fourth Circuit, uh, which uh, some of us are not so happy with in its newer incarnation. But um, he's had many, many other honors, including serving on the board of the Federal Judicial Center. And he's the author of several books, including... Uh, in particular from Brown de the Supreme Court and School Integration, and One Nation Indivisible, uh, How Ethnic Separatism Threatens America. He lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. He'll be followed by Roger Pillan, Vice President for Legal Affairs, and my boss at the Cato Institute. Uh, He is the founder and director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. Now, any account of the changing attitudes on uh, the libertarian right toward judicial restraint and judicial activism has got to have Roger pretty close to or out the center. He has been deeply involved in that debate for many years, and if I may say so, uh, tremendously influential. Uh, he is an adjunct professor at Georgetown. Uh, he held five senior posts in the Reagan administration, including at State and Justice, uh, recipient of many awards, has published basically everywhere that there is to publish. and. Uh, <clears throat> In addition to his JD from GW Law School, he has both an MA and a PhD from the University of Chicago. Uh, First, uh, please join me in welcoming Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson.
2: Welcome to all of you. And um, thank you so much for being here. I'm certainly pleased that Hurricane Sandy permitted this event to take place, and I know all of their hearts go out to our fellow citizens in New Jersey and New York and Connecticut who are <clears throat> struggling uh, with the effects of that of that storm um, It is such a delight to be at Cato this afternoon I've attended a great many Cato events in the past, um, and I invariably leave better informed than when I walked in the door. Um, I think Cato and I share a good bit of common ground, um, but we also differ on some points. um, Though even when we do, it has been clear to me that Cato's voice is one that absolutely needs to be heard. And um, Roger, you are an old friend. I'm glad to be here with you, and I look forward to having you take me to task yet once more. So to Roger and Wally and all my friends at Cato, thank you so much for your invitation, and especially for your contributions. I come today with a plain and simple message. There's nothing very complicated about it. Um, I think the judiciary generally and Conservatives, in particular, need to return to a posture of judicial restraint. In this connection, I I wanted to tell you a little story about how I came to write my recent book. Several years ago, I wanted to master constitutional theory, so I piled my reading table way up high with writings from Bork and Scalia and Brennan and Ely and Posner and many others in an effort to learn what they had to say. And I just couldn't believe how brilliant these people were. Um, and I thought, well, I'd like to make them more accessible to the general public. But boy, are they smart. Um, my wife asked me, she said, what's with all these theorists? Um, for God's sake, go pick up a good novel, Jay. Um, you know, Go read The Great Gatsby or something. Uh, But these people were so interesting and and so brilliant, I I just couldn't put them down. And then something happened. Um, Because as luminous as they all were, they seemed to suffer to me from a common blind spot. um, And that is that they were providing an oh so intellectually respectable path uh, for judges to get Into all sorts of things that we shouldn't be getting into. And my goodness, um, we were offering our definitive constitutional prescriptions on abortion and firearms regulation and zoning regulation and same sex marriage and health care reform and counterterrorism strategy and millennial presidential elections as one thing after another. When will it ever end? So before the federal courts plunge too far into this fall's docket, be it resolved. The turn of the conservative legal movement from restraint to activism is a big mistake. The tension between restraint and activism is everywhere. We see it reflected in the Chief Justice's Affordable Care Act opinion in the struggle to influence the Republican nominee's approach to judicial appointments, and more generally, whenever and wherever conservatives happen to meet. It wasn't too long ago that a respect for representative institutions was the hallmark of the conservative legal approach. No longer leading conservative judges, academics, think tanks, journalists, politicians, now call in varying degrees for the courts to confront Congress, roll back federal statutes, (coughs) purge federal regulations, and return power to the states. This assault is said to be in the name of a constitution of limited enumerated powers, and it sounds ever so beautiful and neat in theory, but in practice, it's gonna prove immensely treacherous and almost impossibly difficult. Just as kind of unrealistic to expect federal courts to pit themselves against Congress, case after case, statute after statute, year after year. This whole effort presupposes that judicial officials with life tenure have a wisdom superior to that of legislative bodies. But the assault of elite opinion upon popular governance will not work, nor should it. One can go only so far before even the most benign plutocracy, even a judicial plutocracy, becomes not a friend but a foe of liberty itself. The Constitution sometimes acts in the manner of a scolding parent. It wags a finger at government. Do not impair free speech or the free exercise of religion. Do not undertake unreasonable searches and seizures. Do not deny and accuse the right to counsel. Do not discriminate against any person on the basis of race and so forth. Sometimes, as with the Second Amendment, the parental message becomes oddly ambiguous and muddled. But those bedrock rights the courts are charged with protecting have long been generally, if not in every particular, clear. So the Constitution sends a clear message to government, certain concrete and particular things government may not do. And notwithstanding the intense criticism it has received, the skepticism of the Roberts Court towards the most aggressive campaign finance regulation and race-based set-asides reinforced those do nots. And thus, they had a sound constitutional rationale. For ambitious campaign finance statutes too often trample the political speech at the core of our constitutional order. And set-asides too often offend the 14th Amendment's glorious designation of a person not a racial or ethnic group as the object of constitutional protection in America. Enforcing these specific negative prohibitions in the Constitution is one thing, but modern conservative activism now aspires to something far more, the aggressive goal of breaking the positive entrustments of constitutional authority to a coordinate branch This is classic overreach. Congress's enumerated powers are too many in numbers. They're like the proverbial prairie dog. They keep popping up. If legislation is not supported by the commerce power, the taxing power may sustain it, or the spending clause, or the 14th Amendment's enforcement authority, you name it. Are we to slay such powers with our slingshot? Through the Necessary and Proper Clause, the Constitution gives Congress leeway in executing its enumerated powers. Article VI declares federal law to be the supreme law of the land, the presumption against the unconstitutionality of legislative acts invoked by Chief Justice Roberts and the Affordable Care Act opinion, underscores the historic infrequency of judicial incursions. There's a reason for all this. The framers of our Constitution endowed Congress with such heavy weaponry that the court is almost bound to lose a protracted legal struggle. This doesn't mean courts are impotent, only that they must respect the proper realm of the people's representatives and stick close to authority clearly conferred by law. The rule of law is in no small part the rule of words, words that are above and apart from the judges that interpret them. That's the problem with this theory of living constitutionalism. In the end, the words don't much matter. And so we have this very interesting book by Lawrence Tribe called The Invisible Constitution and we have a very stimulating book by Akhil entitled, America's Unwritten Constitution. But what about the real constitution? I mean, the actual one. Um, at least the traditional living constitutionalists like Justice Brennan try to deal with an actual document, even if they did pick the most elastic phrases into which to pour their own beliefs. But this is what worries me about current conservative tendency to jump on substantive due process or privileges or immunities or the Ninth Amendment as excuses for judicial intervention. There's simply way too much fuzz here. Uh, And these phrases are just so elastic as to mean almost anything And when they are combined with the current theory of original understanding, the situation just gets worse. For make no mistake, originalism, as it is currently practiced, is an invitation to an activism of its own. Judges overwhelmed with conflicting evidence or, conversely, with scant evidence in hand, can exploit the historical ambiguity and scarcity by picking a side, a side that, ever so surprisingly, just happens to coincide with their own policy beliefs. Now, be careful what we wish for. Suppose on some off chance, conservative activists were actually to win, to produce a brave new constitutional balance between federal and state government. I would suggest that the new world we brought into being might make us nostalgic for the old. Take, for instance, America's economic well-being. It is one thing to say that Congress's attempt to reorder domestic relations, as it did in Morrison, or to designate the uses of local school zones exceeds its commerce power, as in Lopez. But it's quite another thing to use the Commerce Clause for the wildly paradoxical end of restricting Congress's power over the economy itself. Frequent judicial invalidation of federal labor, social welfare, and environmental regulation will lead to just the sort of massive uncertainties that markets themselves deplore. The test that judges over time, have devised as constitutional restraints upon congressional power have been unpredictably vague, and thus predictably litigious. There exists the danger here, too, that judges will deploy their own preferences across the range of of Congress's power to such questions as when does legislation have, quote, a substantial effect? quote, on commerce, insofar as inactivity is concerned, what is a tax and what is a mere penalty? And as for federal spending, at just what point do the conditions of state on states become, quote, coercive? These are good questions, but each of them spawns its own set of sub-questions. And each is going to lead courts deep into budgetary arcana and economic po- policy. As for economic regulation, it is often American businesses, large and small, that get on their knees and beg courts to sustain a single, stable, national rule. This is hardly surprising because the alternative to a robust federal commerce power might be quasi-sovereign state economic units negotiating with one another their own little NAFTAs. The ability of Congress to ensure national regulatory uniformity is surely oppressive in some instances. But it does underlie, days in, this country's ability to avoid avoid balkanization. And it helps to sustain America as the world's foremost economic power. Remember this, judicial activism has always been a game that two can play. Activism unleashed by conservatives in the economic arena will assuredly meet with judicial activism from the other side. When I was clerking for Justice Powell, Justices Brennan, Marshall, and Douglas were attempting passionately and with great conviction in the early 1970s to create constitutional, positive constitutional economic entitlements to housing, education, and public assistance. Judges were going to supervise the adequacy of legislative appropriations in areas of public assistance and in areas of public housing. Can you think of anything that would bring a sweeping areas of domestic policy under the purview of the courts? So it's important not to set off an arms race of activism and it will be naive to pretend as we go about the dubious business of substituting judicial preferences for legislative one that nobody else is watching. It has been the genius of modern conservatism to recognize that economic freedoms and social values are mutually reinforcing the productivity of Americans in their pursuit of self-respect, must be constructed upon the foundations of family, community, and faith. Conservatives will be hindered in promoting these values if our own activist assaults bid fair to follow Roe v. Wade. Cases challenging California Proposition 8's ban on same-sex marriage and the Federal Defense of Marriage Act's definition of marriage as a union between a man and a woman may soon come before the Supreme Court conservatives must remain free to argue unhypocritically if we wish to make the case that legitimate differences on both sides of this wrenching and difficult controversy should be settled through the ordinary processes of democracy rather than by judicial fiat. To wind up, I would just like to say that judicial activism over time depletes political movements which come to believe that defeats in the political arena can somehow be transformed into victory by the federal judiciary. At the end of the day, do we as conservatives wish to place our deepest hopes on the congenial moods of courts? Judges have their place, and it is a good and necessary one, but the national imagination is captured by transformative political leaders the Washingtons and Lincolns and Roosevelt's and Reagans, and not with only rare exceptions, by victories in court. So let politicians be politicians, and let courts remain as courts. Of course, the federal government is often an overbearing creature, but the growth in the numbers and powers of the federal judiciary is a part of, not apart from this expanding trend. Seen in this light, The Supreme Court's upholding of the Affordable Care Act was hardly the end of the world. While one may certainly debate the opinion's rationale, I think the Chief Justice's vote to sustain that legislation was both courageous and correct. To catapult the federal courts by a five to four vote into the most contentious political debate in decades on the eve of a presidential election would have been a serious mistake. The legal sanction for diving into partisan argument over social philosophy and economic policy was simply not present. So now the real debate resumes. Nothing in our Constitution says Congress must exercise its enumerated powers to the fullest extent. Thus did the framers give our political system the room to tame federal authority without undue interference on the part of federal courts. And I hope we will understand all that we're losing as conservatives when we forsake judicial restraint. One, we move further and further from the rule of law as a rule of words and the concept of law as something more than the rule of women and men. Two, we begin to exhibit the same lack of institutional self-discipline and the same same absence of small r Republican virtue that has characterized the budgetary excess on Capitol Hill. And three, we begin to forsake the the framer's view of democratic liberty, which along with personal freedom lies at the heart of our founding charter. To trade our democratic destiny for judicial mastery is not a good swap. Federal judicial activism has often proved a failed experiment and worse. The take-up activism's tattered banner may provide tonight's hurrah, but it assures tomorrow's long regret. Thank you.
3: Where to begin? I'm going to begin by saying how delighted I am to have um, Jay here today with us. I'll call him Jay because, as he said, we are old friends. Um, And I'm delighted also because it affords me an opportunity, uh, as those of you who are regulars at uh, our noon events know that we we follow the event with lunch. It gives me an opportunity to offer up uh, a tasty um, appetizer of uh, roast guest. Uh, we are we are notorious for that in Washington, and I shall try to uh, continue that tradition, mm-hmm. because there is much uh, in what Jay has written in this book to roast. But I want to begin by saying that it is an extraordinarily good book, as Wally said. You will learn an immense amount from reading this, uh, as um, as uh, John Stuart Mill made clear, that we test our beliefs by um, um, challenging them with the opposite view. And believe me, you will go away from reading this book uh, with more knowledge than you uh, began. It is, as Wally said, short, but it is compact in the sense that he puts together a huge amount of material in a short compass and writes extraordinarily well. And in addition to that, gives us a very nice overview of the four main competing uh, cosmic constitutional theories, about which I'll say something more in just a minute, starting with the virtues of each theory before he turns to the vices. And so um, I I think that this is is a book that is just well worth uh, your reading, and so I commend it very highly to you. Notice and you saw this in uh, Jay's opening remarks that what drives him and the book is not so much the Constitution that empowers judges, but rather the uh, brief that he has against judicial activism and the strong belief that he uh, promotes uh, for judicial restraint. In fact, it's so extensive as to leave the judge with almost nothing to do except defer to whatever political uh, branches may have done uh, that finds itself now before the court and before the judge. In other words, as with so many conservatives uh, and conservative jurisprudence, judges, and others who came out of the Warren and Burger Court era, uh, it's far less the Constitution than the role of judges under it that drives Jay's thesis, which is, as his title says, that judges employing constitutional, uh, uh, cosmic constitutional theory are undermining our inalienable right to self-governance. In fact, let me just read from various parts of this to illustrate that. Early on in his argument, on page 9, he says, the great casualty of cosmic constitutional theory has been our inalienable right of self-governance. Well intentioned though they may be, the theorists have blinded judges and scholars alike to this first principle of our constitutional order, namely self-governance. I'm going to return to that point in just a few minutes, but I want to mark it right here. And then right at the end of the book, on the very last page, uh, Jay writes that, so what is my theory? The answer is, I have no theory. I offer only a set of worn and ordinary observations that have all been voiced many times before. There is nothing novel in the idea that judges should pay attention to the text, structure, and history of the Constitution and not go creating rights out of whole cloth, or that judges should appreciate otherness, the other branches of government, the other sovereign that is state government, the other institutions, professions, and trades that that comprise the private sector. And then he concludes this by saying, or that liberty is best safeguarded when the allocation of authority to those others is respected by the courts. Well, the great problem today, the great modern problem in the 20th century, century is that due to the deference of the courts to those other branches, we have a leviathan that today has given us a debt of $16 trillion, that has given us a budget 40% of which we borrow to carry out. And in other words, this leviathan, I submit, is the result of the kind of judicial deference that came out of the New Deal court. And it's the major problem that we deal with today, far greater than the problem of judicial activism, in my judgment. And indeed, the regional design, as we at Cato have been arguing since the inception of the Center for Constitutional uh, uh, Studies, has been uh, rent asunder by the theory that came out of progressivism as institutionalized by the New Deal court, about which I'll say something more in just a moment. Now, um, for all of this, however, Jay purports to have no theory, as I, as I just uh, read uh, from the passage. In fact, on the ve- uh, the, the, he, he does have a theory, though, and we see it on page after page. It's a theory that says, as his subtitle implies, that our fundamental constitutional principle is democracy, which invariably means, of course, majoritarianism. But of course, if that's all it meant, that would be bad enough. But as public choice theorists have shown us over and over again, it means rule by special interests, those special interests who know how to work the system, realizing that uh, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs will give them the leg up in working the political branches. And the result is, as I said a moment ago, the Leviathan that we have today. Book is divided, however, into four main parts, and it seems to me that's the great genius of this book, to focus on those four main theories. He begins with living constitutionalism, and William Brennan is, of course, his exemplar of that. He then goes to originalism uh, by Hugo Black and Robert Bork. And there are the two main theories that, of course, are vying for attention and have been vying for attention ever since the um, Warren and Burger courts came onto the scene. Then he also looks at um, uh, what he calls political process theory from John Hart Ely, uh, and then pragmatism, uh, as exemplified by uh, the um, works of uh, Richard Posner, which he calls activism through anti-theory. I'm not going to say much about <clears throat> those third and fourth schools of thought. The two main ones are um, enough for the limited time that uh, either of us has, to, has this afternoon. Starting, though, with um, uh, living uh, uh, constitutionalism, um, his main criticism, and this is true of all the... All the um, Uh, theories that he discusses, is that the judges uh, are invariably driven to impose their own personal values. Well, of course, you ask the judges uh, who are in uh, uh, the crosshairs of Jay what they're doing, and of course, with the exception of Brennan, who was quite clear on the point, they are not uh, imposing their personal values. What they are doing is, they think, interpreting the Constitution. And of course, that's the great debate. Are they interpreting it correctly or incorrectly? But repeatedly through this book, we have Jay's reducing that always to personal values, rather than to grappling with whether their theory of the Constitution is or is not correct. Again, I'm going to turn to that in just a moment. With respect to Brennan, however, and the Living Constitution, um, let's be clear. Jay praises uh, the, the, that school's fruitful definitions of commerce And uh, I think uh, a passage here would be helpful, especially for this audience, to understand what he's talking about. He says, by allowing the legislative branch, this is the New Deal court, to update constitutional terms like commerce. I wasn't aware that commerce needed updating as a term, but apparently that's the case. Living constitutionalism also made contributions to democratic accountability, legislative flexibility, and judicial restraint that originalist interpretation would not allow. That's right. The Lochner Court did not allow that. It stood athwart those efforts to use the Commerce Clause, as well uh, as uh, other uh, parts of the uh, 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 the alleged parts of the Constitution to expand the scope of government. Um, he then, um, uh, he then uh, uh, goes to equality. And, and here you've got some interesting discussions of, of what, uh, what it is that um, Jay has to say on, on this particular subject, namely that um, the very existence of multiple elective forms established by the Constitution presupposes that allowing different answers to some of our disputatious uh, questions is not at all a bad way to proceed. I submit that the reason that you allowed different uh, uh, forums for political activity was not to allow different answers to some of the disputatious questions, but rather to check power against power. And we see that throughout the Federalist Papers. It wasn't so much to reach the best result, but to enable one locus of power to check another locus of power. And then we see uh, right after that some of the things that uh, Jay thinks uh, we're properly decided uh, and improperly decided. Uh, Lopez, Heller, and so forth were not uh, uh, properly decided. Um, And then um, when we turn to uh, what, to my mind, is the core of the matter with respect to Uh, originalism, and here I'm going to leave the living constitution thing, because much of what Jay says about living constitutionalism in his critical part is absolutely correct. But then he turns to originalism, citing Hugo Black as the original uh, uh, textualist, as indeed he was, and Bork as the true originalist. But when he turns to Bork, however, uh, he Um, praises Bork for having, for example, uh, dismissed the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, saying essentially that we don't know what it means, therefore presumably we should ignore it. Well, I don't know how a textualist, just because he's not sure what it means, can ignore the text. It seems to me that that is an invitation to find out more precisely what it does mean. In any event, Uh, He says that, in other words, it can be just as as activist to pretend that the Constitution's words provide all the answers as to ignore its text in order to reach outcomes one happens to approve. And, of course, this is true of those who happen to approve democracy as the outcome, or majoritarianism. Now we come to the heart of the matter, it strikes to me, and that's with his discussion of Bork. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to suggest what it is that Jay left out of this, is the core of the matter. Bork's search for a theory began with the Madisonian dilemma, Jay writes. The Constitution establishes the government around two principles that necessarily exist in tension, majority power and minority freedom. The framers genius lay in recognizing that neither majorities nor minorities can be trusted to define the proper spheres of democratic authority and individual liberty. There are dangers at either extreme, tyranny is tyranny, be it of the majority or the minority. The framers balance the competing principles of majority rule and minority freedom, both structurally by limiting the reach of power and dispersing power within the national government and substantively through the Bill of Rights. What is left out there is the core of the problem in the Borkian approach. What Bork said was not just that the the Madisonian dilemma invites us to find the balance between majoritarian rule and minority rights. He said more precisely that our majoritarian, our Madisonian dilemma amounts to two fundamental principles. First, that in wide areas, majorities are entitled to rule simply because they are majorities. Nevertheless, and here's our second principle, there are some things that majorities must not do to minorities, some areas in which minorities must be free from majority rule. Those quantitative points make all the difference in the world. They are saying, in other words, that we are basically a small d democratic majoritarian nation with majorities authorized to rule in wide areas and more minorities retaining some restraint from that. That, I submit, gets Madison exactly backwards. It turns Madison on his head. Madison stood for the fundamental principle that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, in some areas, Majorities are entitled to rule because we have authorized them to rule. That gets the principle straight. Liberty first, democracy 2nd where authorized, not the other way around. And that, of course, has been, from our perspective here at the Cato Institute, the fundamental problem with both the liberal approach and the conservative approach to the proper role of judges. Judges are there neither to make up the law out of whole cloth, nor to ignore the law like the Privileges or Immunities Clause, like the Ninth Amendment, when it is there staring them in the face. And so when you look at it that way, it turns out that there's much more for the judge to do than, than uh, would, we would imagine under the um, uh, theory that, is, uh, that Jay has set forth. And I see that my time is coming to an end. And maybe I'll get a chance to finish the rest of this in my five-minute rebuttal. But the point that I would leave you with is this, that you need to have a theory of the matter if you are going to understand the proper role of the court. And the theory of the matter is the theory of the Constitution, not simply the theory of judicial review. And the theory of the Constitution, it seems to me, is one that makes it clear that the framers, and you look at the Constitution from beginning to end, from the preamble to the ratification clause, to all the points in between, and you will see that in case after case, the framers established the Constitution meant to limit government. And then if you really want to look at original understanding, look at the Federalist Papers. In Federalist 41, Madison makes it clear that the General Welfare Clause is extraordinarily limited, in other words, the taxing power. In Federalist 42, he addresses the limits of the Commerce Clause. In Federalist 44, he addresses the limits of the Necessary and Proper Clause. In Federalist 45, he makes it very clear when he says that the powers of the new government will be, quote, few and defined. And then in Federalist 51, he gives us this famous if men were angels passage. In which he makes clear that this is a constitution of limited government. It cannot be limited if you leave it all to the political branches. All right, Jay, have at it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Judge Wilkinson. Let
2: me pick up the little pieces of myself and try to reassemble the whole. (laughs) Thank you, Roger. Your critique is. Is trenchant as usual. I, um, I um, like to agree with you, Roger, but then we'd both be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> look at the Constitution, Roger. Speaking from it, I'm speaking from it. If you look at uh, uh, Article Three and compare it with Article One and Article Two, <laughs> you realize we can't start a counter activist revolution. To... Article One and Article Article 3 not only follows Article 1 and Article 2, it's much shorter. And if you read Article 3, we don't have any of these specific prescriptive enumerated powers. You read Article 1, you go, oh, Congress can do this, this, tick, 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 tick. Article 3, the judiciary can hear cases and controversies. But we don't have the substantive prescriptive power, which is a source of constitu- which would be a source of constitutional activism if we did have it. It ain't there. Now, the other point, one of the other point is that you know, if we sat up and exercised judicial restraint, judges would have nothing to do, if only. <laughs> um, we have specific rights. The Constitution tells us to safeguard we have innumerable statutes to interpret. We have innumerable regulations to interpret, you know, sadly. Um, I know the if you took the Code of Federal Regulations, it would sh- easily stretch across the country. I think it'd probably circle the globe. My only question is whether we, whether we get to the moon. Uh, the Code of Federal Regulations just might reach there, but We have to make sense of all these things and interpret all these things. And that's going to be ours to do, no matter what. The most restrained judge has to interpret law and has to interpret regulations. But we'll have plenty to do, believe me. Um, Roger mentions that the courts are somehow responsible for the Leviathan that the federal government has become. it, it, he doesn't really think that. The, 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 look at all the things that have occurred in the last century. We had World War One and World War Two. We've had a more connected international order um, and global trade and international relations. We have had um, uh, the growth of industrialization, which has frankly led to interstate threats to um, the environment. We've had revolutions in transportation and communication. Um, life is vastly more complex in many respects. And there are dangers to the public welfare um, from some individual actions that did not exist before. But I just don't think that you can possibly lay responsibility for the leviathan that is the federal government on the on the, at the doorstep of the federal courts it's it's due to too many different causes too many complex underlying causes that even the most valiant array of judges could have done nothing to stem or little to stem now i, I gather from my friends comments that we are Supposed to apply some sort of corrective, but I don't know exactly what, because I'm left without the standards that I'm supposed to apply. I mean, some people suggest we're supposed to apply the Ninth Amendment to bring Congress's powers to heel. Well, the Ninth Amendment says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights uh, should not be construed to deny or disparage others. Uh, retained by the people. Well, how how does that give a judge uh, anything by way of a standard to resolve a case? Um, It's it's as broad as all outdoors. And to the extent that it suggests rights are retained by the people, it's an argument for self-government, not judicial government. It's an argument for the people having some say in their own destiny. Um, substantive due process. Uh, which rights does that read in? A, a right to employment, or a, a right to reproductive choice, a right to this, a right to that? Again, it's um, it's it's just um, it's too vague. I mean, the, the contracts clause is nice; it says you're not to impair the obligation of any contract, but. If you take that literally, is that supposed to mean that a, a, a contract for murder for hire is sacrosanct under that f- clause of, of Article One? All these standards are so vague they're about to vaporize. They don't provide a working set of precepts for judges to do the job that my friend Roger wants us to do. We don't have the wherewithal. We as courts um, are the glue that holds this country together. We have such an important role. It's a nonpartisan role. It's a role where we knit nonpartisanship out of allegiance to words. And if we take activism in the judiciary and keep pushing down the pedal, what you're going to see, folks, is you're going to see a judiciary that's already deeply divided, become even more so, and become even more polarized, and you're going to see a high degree of polarization expand into what is fortunately now in relative terms, in relative terms, the least polarized branch. Um, this is not good, if you exercise restraint, you have a much better chance of impressing the American public that the judiciary is impartial, that it looks at the words of law, that it interprets law, that it does not create law according to our own personal agendas. And it is crucial to convey that view of the courts to the person, man and woman, on the streets. And I would say one thing finally. We need to remember that the third branch is the only branch um, that's comprised solely of lawyers. Um, We need to, folks, we need to keep that in mind. Um, We don't have school teachers. We don't have insurance salesmen. We don't have dentists. We don't have firemen. uh, we don't have restaurant owners. We don't, the whole array of professions are not represented. And that's quite apart from the fact that we never face election. And suppose those of you who are lawyers um, got out of bed one morning and suddenly found that your government, that was making decisions on some of the most intimate and personal and significant matters of your life, life was com- composed entirely of plumbers or stockbrokers or school teachers or whatever, that wouldn't sit w- too well with you, would it? Well, so you need to put yourself in the other folks' shoes. It doesn't sit too well with somebody when they go and see a, a profession, uh, com- a, a group of folks com- comprised of one profession only, making judgments that apply to all professions across the board. There was never, the, the American people never consented to anything that wide ranging. What they did agree to, and thankfully so, is that there is a judicial branch where there's a degree of textual specificity and concreteness. We need to step in and protect those rights, but where that Specific verbal instruction and mandate is not present. We need to stick to our job.
3: All right. Uh, Let me then respond, sort of in order, to what uh, Jay has just said. The um, he began by distinguishing the text of Article Three from the much more ample text of Article One, and noting that Article Three followed Article One, which uh, is good that they put it. uh, They got their numbers right. They got much more right than that, however. The Article uh, 3, like Article 2, the vesting clauses, uh, are clauses that vest uh, jurisdiction uh, in a general way, rather than specifically. Article 1 begins, remember, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. And therefore, we know that Congress's powers are limited to those 18 that are enumerated in Article I, Section 8. By contrast, the executive and the judicial powers are not so limited. They are plenary. Now, it does fall to, uh, to us to determine what we mean by the executive power or the judicial power. And I fully grant that the judicial power was at that time something of a novel invention the idea of judicial review is implicit in a written constitution it's implicit in a um, uh, in a grant of the judicial power it was not unknown at that time indeed back in 1610 Lord Bonham Lord Cook's uh, uh, Decision in the Dr. Bonham case is an early example of judicial review, finding the statute before him to be null and void ab initio because contrary to right reason, at least we have a constitutional text to repair to for that. But it was understood, especially during the 11 years between the Declaration and the Constitution, that the judicial power would have to be ample enough to address some of the problems that had arisen during that 11-year period at the states, where legislatures were running amok, Democratic majorities uh, s- uh, seizing property, abrogating contracts, forgiving debts, and the like, they came to realize that there is a role for judicial review of legislative action, and it seems to me that they put that power in Article Three, le- in the hands of judges, and indeed, if you look at essays like uh, John Yu and Sai Prakash's essay on the origins of judicial review, in the University of Chicago Law Review of 2003, you will see a rich discussion of what it was that they meant for the judiciary uh, to be engaged in. So I don't think the fact that they didn't spell out the powers of the judiciary in greater detail is, is a terribly persuasive argument. He then went on to say that judges have nothing to do. Uh, That that is simply wrong, that they have a lot to do, especially in enforcing the specific rights. Well, does that mean that before the Constitution, uh, before the Bill of Rights was added, uh, during that period they had much less to do because there were no rights at all, except those few that were specified in Article I, Section 9, uh, habeas corpus and the like? No, uh, they had to police the doctrine of enumerated powers, at least at some level and um they had to um uh, and and therefore the implication of their being enumerated and thus limited powers was that there were rights where there were no power all the bill of rights did was specify certain areas that want, they wanted to be very clear about were not to be in, uh, uh, intruded upon by the political branches and then they realized that They couldn't enumerate all of those areas, and that's what the Ninth Amendment is all about. It's making clear that, as it says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. You can't retain what you don't first have to be retained. And so in a very fundamental way, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments recapitulate the philosophy that was first set forth in the Declaration of Independence, namely, that we begin with liberty and we authorize only such government as, in fact, we have authorized, and we retain all of our rights, enumerated and unenumerated alike. Therefore, it falls to the court to have to determine what those rights are, both the enumerated and the unenumerated. Thus, when Jay asks, Would we want to have, for example, the contract clause protect contracts for the murder uh, for hire? Of course not, because we have a theory of rights that we understood that we inherited largely, but not entirely, from the common law, also from the natural law tradition, that says that you cannot enter into a contract of that, or put it more precisely, you can't have a contract of that kind enforced. And if you do carry out the measures set forth in the contract, it will be held against you in a criminal court. So that you do simply by repair to the theory of of rights. And this is the kind of thing that it seems to me you have to come to grips with if you're going to apply the Constitution in its full, rich understanding. But I come back to the point with which I began. Namely, you have to have a theory of the matter. You cannot avoid constitutional theorizing in the name of resisting judicial, uh, uh, judicial activism. I fully grant that there is judicial activism. There always has been judicial activism. But the answer to judicial activism is not judicial abdication. It is better judging. <clears throat> Thank you.
1: Now it is your turn. We will turn to questions and answers. and. Whether or not we find self-restraint to be the cardinal virtue for judges, I'm here to say that self-restraint is the cardinal virtue for questioners from the audience. Um, And I will ask several types of self-restraint from you. First, uh, please wait until I call on you. Uh, When I do call on you, please wait for the microphone. Do we have a roaming microphone person? Good. Um, Wait until that microphone gets to you uh, so that everyone in the room can hear uh, your question. Begin, please, by announcing your name and affiliation if you have one. So uh, with that, I will peer out. um, Yes, uh, third row.
4: Thank you very much. This is a fascinating uh, program. My name is Peter Gluck. And uh, I'm somewhat interested in hearing what either or both of you have to say about the role of Justice Marshall. That's John, not Thurgood. because his articulation of the power of judicial review in Marbury I think set the stage for all of this. Whether you believe he was a judicial, judicial activist in articulating ju- the power of judicial review, which is not in Article 3, or exercising judicial restraint. Thank you.
2: Well, I'd, I certainly, um, First of all, um, thank you for your question. And I probably as great a devotee and admirer of Chief Justice Marshall as anybody could possibly be. I take a great deal of pride and place in knowing that he was a Virginian, and came from my hometown of Richmond. If you haven't visited the Marshall House, you you sure should. It's right now. It's uh, crowded out by hospitals and banks and everything, but it's still a very worthwhile place to go. Um, I love those opinions of Marbury versus Madison and Givens v. Ogden and um, McCulloch v. Maryland. And not only do I love them, but um, I agree with them. And uh, and even if I didn't agree with them, there's two centuries of water over the dam. the i th- i think the chief justice's great opinions helped to um il- illustrate my my point in taking gibbons v uh, gibbons v Ogden i don't know where this country would be if we didn't have some judicial, if, if if chief justice Marshall had not created a a silent what's what's sort of called a silent commerce clause that permitted um the the federal courts and and others to say that uh, um, one state could not burden and discriminate against the products or uh, of um, another state and um, I think in in um, in McCulloch v Maryland by Standing up and giving some content to the necessary and proper clause, the Chief Justice was underscoring some of the points that I've tried to echo here this morning, which is that this is, in many respects, a very nationalist constitution. And Chief Justice Marshall was was one of the great nationalists of our day. I, you know, I've heard the theory that if he uh, hadn't done what he did, and those opinions, a nation would have been too fragile to survive the Civil War. So he created a nation, and he was a great nationalist, and that's one of the things that I was doing because he went, was 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 um, trying to echo that that what he did was give the national legislature and the Congress room to act, and he was not trying to interpose judicial barriers and saying to the legislative authority, no, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that. Yes, he did uh, in Marbury inaugurate the principle of judicial review, but it has to be understood in terms of the um, uh, the, the, the great nationalist perspective on the Constitution that he gave us all and that endures to this day and that allows self-governance to operate. So nobody is on a higher pedestal than the great Chief Justice, in my view.
3: Well, uh, let, me, let me just answer your question directly, namely uh, that, um, in my view, um, Matt, uh, Marshall, Marshall's um, opinion is thought to have established judicial review in our tradition I don't think it did establish it. It secured it, that's for sure. But it was there before that. uh, And I find it implicit in a theory of, in in a written constitution that provides for an independent judiciary. Because now you have to determine, in cases or controversies that come before that court, what the um, meaning of the constitution is. And when Madison said early on that it will fall, at the time the Bill of Rights was sent out, that it will fall to courts to be an impenetrable bulwark against every uh, advance of the um, legislative and executive branches, he too was alluding to the idea of judicial review. With respect finally to Jay's having mentioning um, Givens v. Ogden, Uh, There, let's notice what Marshall did in that case. Yes, he upheld the federal power, but he read it as a power to ensure the free flow of goods and services among the states, precisely the reason the Commerce Clause was written in the first place, in light of the uh, activities by states under the Articles of Confederation, the tariffs and other such measures that was leading to the breakdown of national commerce, and so they gave Congress the power to regulate or make regular commerce among the states, not a power to regulate anything and everything under the sun for any reason whatsoever. And yet, in his book, Jay has a saying, and I'll quote here with respect to the Obamacare, and this, of course, um, was written before the decision came down. He says, the idea that Congress is constitutionally disabled under the commerce power, from regulating activity affecting one sixth of the national economy strikes me as a heavy judicial lift. Well, they were able to carry out that heavy judicial lift, at least with respect to the Commerce Clause. Um, They didn't do so well on the the, uh, taxing clause. But um, it seems to me that that's the kind of heavy lift that we have a court to do from time to time.
1: Next question. Um, Yes, in the back.
0: Yes, uh, David Mirabalek, uh, The Daily Caller, and uh, also a fellow Cavalier. Uh, I'm Jeff Wilkinson. My, my question is with regards to uh, stare decisis. Um, if a judge who seeks to practice judicial restraint is faced with a decision that was uh, I, at least that it was decided on activist grounds. What is the judge to do? Um, a, a few weeks ago, Justice Scalia at a book signing at one of the uh, one of the other think tanks here in D.C. Um, he he basically hinted at a <clears throat> sort of let bygones be bygones approach. Um, that stare decisis has a role, and if a judge is faced with a decision where activism was used, you know maybe he should uphold it. Um, do you agree with that, or do you believe that? Uh, that that activism should be stamped out
2: um, your your question is what what does a restrained judge do when you face an activist precedent um, i I think um, that um, there's a there, there's a tension here, and that, that's why your 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 question is um, a good one. Um, I don't think that uh, you you simply go pell-mell at it and say, okay, overruled, 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 overruled. Um, a judge who exercises restraint, it would really be quite a paradox if we just took a machete. To um, every activist precedent with within sight, there would be um, uh, it would be frankly <laughs> hypocrisy um, so you don 't just go after every precedent you don 't like just because at the time it was handed down, it may have been activist. I think that 's pretty crude um, and uh, at the same time it would go against my uh, theory of view of judicial power, would, because it would it would expose it to the naked charge that uh, wh- wh- whatever decisions were handed down was purely and simply a function of whatever nine men and women were on the court. And that just really under undermines the rule of law fundamentally to think that um, every precedent is up for grabs every time the composition of the court changes. So, on the one hand, I think you avoid um, just being crude and, and a bull in a china shop. But on the other hand, um, if you, uh, the, uh, there are judicial um, cases come up that give you a chance to, to temper. Um, previous precedent, and to draw it back in um, a little bit, and I don't think that a, that a judge should just sit there like a bump on a log either. It's it's a it's 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 a fine line between just being crude and knocking it down, and and just accepting things that are fundamentally misguided in in the first place, and. You know, I love to, one of the beauties of law is I love to watch its motion. And sometimes it doesn't move in a straight line. Sometimes it moves in an arc. And sometimes that arc is very slow. Legislative authority can change overnight if if one elects a new president or a new Congress and it flips back and forth and everything like that. Judicial authority was never meant to have... That abrupt a change that's not a characteristic of who we are we're We're supposed to follow a little bit uh, and and change is slower to come for us, and so it moves in an arc, and yes, you presidents erode over time, and you chip them over time and everything. But as for some sort of overt overruling, um it's neither wise nor nor feasible so i'm I'm giving you something of a nuanced answer to that question, and I I, I think it's correct.
3: (laughs) Well, to answer your question, you can do it sometimes uh, and pay the price for a temporary period of time and then move on, as in Plessy v. Ferguson being overruled by Brown v. Board of Education, or Bowers v. Hardwick being overruled by Lawrence v. Texas. When you're dealing with large programs, however, that are unconstitutional, like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and the like, you obviously, from the bench, cannot overrule those. It takes a long time to get into social. It doesn't take a long time to get into socialism, but it takes a long time to get out of it, because you've got people who are dependent upon those programs. And so that means that the court has to begin chipping away where it can. That was the beauty of Lopez, Morrison, and other related cases under the Rehnquist Court is that they began laying down a foundation, as this court did in the Obamacare decisions with respect to the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and cases like South Dakota v. Dole. But the uh, the, the I wish they'd laid down more with respect to uh, the Obamacare thing and done as the Eleventh Circuit did. But uh, with those longstanding programs, no, the court is in no position to do that. It has neither purse nor sword. That has to be done by the political branches. Nevertheless, they can lay down the principles.
2: To just follow up, even even as wrong as Plessy versus Ferguson was, you had 20 years of chipping on the part of the Supreme Court before Brown v. Board of Education was handed down. So you had in cases like Sweat v. Painter and McLaurin, which went at it through the law schools, and went at it through funding, and went at it this way, and then finally laid the groundwork for that glorious Brown decision. But even with a precedent that was totally wrong, um, and and an overruling that was totally correct, there were 20 years of preparing the groundwork and chipping away. So I guess that's a concrete example.
1: More questions?
3: Um, Clark Neely. No, Clark Neely is right up there. Clark Neely is the director of the Institute for Justice's project on um, judicial engagement, uh, which um, is music to my ear.
4: (laughs) Thank you, Roger. Uh, Thank you, Wally. Um, Judge Wilkinson, it's a pleasure. I wanted to uh, also tell you how much I enjoyed reading your book and commend it to people who have not yet read it, um, not only for how uh, thought-provoking it is, but also the elegance of your prose. It's really impressive, so thanks for a good read. Um, I have a two-part question. The first part is, um, if there were a constitutional amendment that said, in effect, we the people of the United States having considered the pros and cons of adopting this amendment instruct judges to protect unenumerated natural rights of Americans, would the judiciary have an obligation, notwithstanding the lack of standards, to attempt to enforce that amendment? And the second question is, could one reasonably suppose that we actually do have one or more amendments that provide that exact instruction to judges?
2: Uh, if there was a constitutional amendment that, that re- required the judiciary to protect and enforce natural rights. Well, what, one of the, um, I mean, as, assuming that such an amendment would would pass, and given the fact that it has to go through two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the United States, um, I mean, three-quarters of the states um, I doubt it would, but it's it 's still an interesting hypothetical um, if we were presenting with that kind of instruction um, i, I don 't know about you, but but when I get instructed to do something, I like to know what it is that i 'm instructed to do, and if i 'm just given some sort of blank blanket permission to or what to um, uh, go about enforcing natural rights. Um, I mean, which national, which, which natural rights? Um, how far am I to go in enforcing, enforcing them? Um, how much of a burden on the natural rights uh, must, must legislation um, impose before I can strike down the, the legislation? Um, and so I really would feel myself um, out in very choppy waters um, in a very small craft. Um, it's it, it it. We have a maximum when we um, interpret statutes, and it is that the specific trumps the general. Um, if you have a specific legislative mandate, it 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 trumps a general preamble or general legislative purpose. And I think that that's a very wise maxim because it focuses judges on specifics. And part of the difficulty I have with um, due due process, for example, um, or the Ninth Amendment, for example, it is uh, so much less specific than something like the First or the Fourth Amendment. I know what I'm supposed to do, basically, I mean, not not on all the marginal cases, but the First and Fourth Amendment gives me so some confidence that my feet are on solid ground. The Ninth Amendment gives me none. And I think the one that you're talking about is sort of more of a Ninth Amendment animal than a First or Fourth Amendment animal, and so my skepticism rises. <laughs> well, you
3: know, the The problem that Jay points to uh, in his discussion of originalism is that the Constitution is often not clear uh, if you look at the original understanding uh, by way of interpreting it. And he's perfectly correct that it often is not. But I think that can be overstated and overstated by a lot because the Constitution taken as a whole, reading all of its parts, integrating them together, does give you a fairly good picture. As I said earlier, it gives you a picture that it was designed mainly to ensure individual liberty with government authorized to do that and to do the few other things that it is authorized to do, leaving us otherwise free to plan and live our own lives. And if you look at it in that kind of framework, then you've got a theory of the Constitution to begin with. Now, it turns out that oftentimes, if you go from that uh, broad theory and then go to the text, the text will solve the problem for you. But then if you go from there to elaborate on the text through original understanding, you can start to get into trouble for the very reasons that Jay cites in his book. But that doesn't mean you can't back out and go back to text and theory, and I'll give you a good example of that in Jay's discussion of equal protection. He says that um, the original public understanding of a text is meaningless without also knowing at what level of generality that understanding took place. For example, debates rage about the original understanding of the level of generality of the Equal Protection Clause. Does it forbid uh, discrimination on the basis of race, or does it only forbid discrimination against African Americans? I submit it prohibits discrimination per se. The Equal Protection Clause is there because government belongs to all of us. There's your theoretical foundation. Because it belongs to all of us, it cannot discriminate against any of us, except on grounds that are narrowly tailored to serve the function of the institution that is at issue before us. Thus, a public fire department can discriminate against handicapped would-be firefighters, but not against handicapped would-be front office workers. And you don't have to go to original understanding to see, well, now, did they mean only for African-Americans to be protected, or did they mean women to be protected too? Did they mean gays and lesbians to be protected as well? The text will serve. It says, nor deny any person the equal protection of the laws. The justice is blindfolded, and that's what it's all about. And you don't have to go to original understanding. Text will do.
1: Questions?
4: Uh, Yes. Quinn Hillier with the Center for Individual Freedom and the American Spectator. I had a more theoretical question, but in the uh, interest of time, I'll ask a a more specific one for Judge Wilkinson. You said a number of times that you specifically object to uh, activism based on substantive due process. I've been trying to think of any examples of modern conservative jurisprudence that is based on substantive due process, and I'm wondering if you can give some examples of what this beast is that you're trying to slay.
2: Well, um, the 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 fundamental objection it, it, it it's not just concern it's not just activism based on substantive due process that i'm concerned about but activism a general tendency of activism across the board and and the um the the specific difficulty that I have with activism based on substantive due process is that the word process seems to me to convey a procedural notion um it doesn't convey a substantive notion it's basically Um, one of those things that guarantees a a fair process when someone is denied something. It is not, uh, if if they meant, if the the framers of the 14th Amendment meant to convey substantive rights, such as a right to a job or a right to housing or a right to education or, or a right to reproductive choice or whatever, they 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 surely chose a strange way of wording it because they they wrapped this whole amendment in that due process clause um in um in in procedural garb and um uh, I think that's basically the uh difficulty that i i have with it Did you have another question sir uh,
4: In the follow-up, I mean, as a follow-up, you did say conservatives specifically have, quote, jumped on substantive due process and used it. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out when.
3: I've got an example. Well, Go ahead, Ron. Okay. Uh, the, um, the, the idea of due process uh, being substantive is as old as Article 29 of Magna Carta. Through the centuries, it's been understood to be substantive. It's an the idea of substantive due process as a term came into being only in the early twentieth century, uh, in response to the Lochner Court. Um, I'll give you a recent case coming out of the D.C. Circuit, Hettinga, which was decided by Judge Janice Rogers Brown, and concurrence uh, or joined by. Chief Judge David santel both solid conservatives, or in the case of Judge Janice Rogers Brown, a libertarian conservative. And it is a decision that upholds economic liberty under the 14th Amendment's due, no, this is under the Fifth Amendment's due process clause. And so there's a perfect example, and I think a correct decision is being appealed to the Supreme Court. We filed a brief in that, and so stay tuned with that case.
2: You know, I, I want to answer your question with a specific, too, because I think I owe you more than a general answer. Um, one example of the way in which conservatives have jumped on substantive due process has been in attacking all kinds of local zoning ordinances. Um, local zoning ordinances of uh, uh, height restrictions, setback restrictions, um, uh, all sorts of utilizations, There have been all kinds of attacks against local zoning boards, um, state authorities, and federal court based on substantive uh, due due process. Now, you know, um, these sorts of of attacks on local zoning ordinances, um, zoning has frankly been a, a tool used broadly in many jurisdictions, almost all of them across the country, um, on the theory that Zechariah Chafee once said, "Your your your uh, your right to swing your fist um, ends where your neighbor's nose begins," and that's basically the theory of of zoning and. Uh, to, to knock these down on a uh, knock all these down on a substantive due process theory that I can do anything um, with my property uh, that I please, or that any regulation that leads to any diminution in the substantive in the in the value of my property is vulnerable to a regulatory takings attack or a substantive due process attack. Um, strikes me as a way to go about destroying um, the uh, environment and much of the quality of life that characterizes many many communities. So I think this is an an example of judicial restraint where the federal courts say, look, uh, the people of the local communities, when they get together in these zoning board hearings and go before local city council, They've got the control of their communities and whether it's gonna take a path of development or whether it's gonna take a path of conservation, let the folks get together and argue about it. Why should the federal courts under a substantive due process or regulatory takings um, rationale just barge in? But there are other examples, but I wanted to give you a specific one because I thought it was an excellent question.
3: But Jay, there is nothing, uh, none of us who, do, who argue for putting teeth into the regulatory takings jurisprudence is saying that that would allow nuisance. I mean, that is one of the classic exceptions to that. What you're suggesting would result in, for example, the Lucas case, where uh, David Lucas bought two parcels of land for nearly a million dollars. The South Carolina legislature passed its Beachfront Management Act to promote tourism. Uh, protect certain flora and fauna, reducing the value of his property almost to nothing. And four justices on the Supreme Court would would have allowed that to happen because they were deferring to the political branches. That was an outrageous taking of his property. And this is what the takings clause is all about. If it doesn't have teeth in a case like that, then what's the point of its being there in the Constitution?
2: Because you can you can take an extreme example where the the taking is almost akin to an act of eminent domain, but the more common example is where a a regulation leads to some diminution of value or leads to some um, thwarting of expectations that you're going to be able to build a duplex or a, a, a uh, a, a, some sort of a condominium community or even a a, of a high rise and you you take it sufficiently far zoning regulations um, and and modifications lead to diminutions of values all the time but I think when you buy a piece of property it's like another investment you're never sure exactly what the the future is going to bring um, you 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 buy a stock you're not you're not sure whether the value of the stock is going to go up or down. Um, you, you buy a piece of property, you don't know five, 10, 15 years, whether the value of that property is gonna remain stable or gonna go down or whatever, and the regulatory future is part of what you factor into your decision when you invest in real estate. Well, so
3: that's another dimension. Jay, I'll just conclude with one point, and that's this, and that'll take you right back to your beloved Charlottesville. The kind of theory that you've just advanced came up in the case of Monticello, whereby the people who are running Monticello were exercised over uh, the building of condominiums on a distant hill which they said despoiled Jefferson's views. So they wanted the local zoning people to prohibit that building from taking place. In other words, they wanted the local zoning people to traduce Jefferson's views in order to save his views.
1: With that, we we have run out of time before lunch. Before thanking our panel, let me tell you a bit about the mechanics of getting to lunch because uh, you will need to go up the spiral staircase. It will be on the second floor. Um, if you are looking for a restroom, uh, wait till you're on the second floor, uh, look for the yellow wall on your right. Uh, <clears throat> we have books for sale outside, uh, Cosmic Constitutional Theory. I think you will uh, join me in saying, as we used to say when I lived in California, that both of our panelists were pretty cosmic today.
2: I just um, want to, because- Wally, can I just thank everybody for coming? No, and, thank you, and, please and, thank and, our uh, panelists. And for, for your for your wonderful wonderful questions and 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 Roger, I I just want to thank you. You are just more fun to have a discussion with. I gotta tell you,
3: <laughs> you too, Jay. <laughs>